When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace here with John Pigeon, as always. And I took it upon myself last night to jump in the Facebook group, the My Millennial Money Facebook group, that is, and ask the people what questions do they have for us. The biggest thing about doing this podcast is we want to add value to you and know what you want to learn about. So being in that group, and if you're a first time listener and have no idea what I'm talking about, just search My Millennial Money in the Facebook search bar. It'll come up and you can join the group. You've got to jump through a few hoops to get in there. It's pretty stringent. <laughs> Not. Not. <laughs> I mean, they let John in, so. <laughs> they let everyone in, don't they? But I do say that a lot of people that I speak to aren't actually on Facebook. So there's probably a lot oh. of people nodding right now. So if that's you and you okay. want to punch a question through to us, just uh, hit us up on uh, Instagram or wherever you find us online. Indeed. On all social platforms, we are there, including TikTok. John, your TikToks keep coming up in my feed of late. Really? Wow. Yeah. Well, the algorithm must know. The algorithm. Well, full confession, I do not have TikTok on my phone. So our marketing team is doing an outstanding job. Indeed they are. Well, without further ado, let's answer some questions and give the people what they want. Let's get into it. Okay, so Daniel Quinn talks about depreciation on new apartments with strata versus potential maintenance on existing and lower depreciation. A bit to unpack there, Emily. Yeah. I I think a lot of, well, the common, I suppose, thread I get from people is I've sat down with my accountant, They, they said I'm paying too much tax and they reverted to you need to buy a new car if you're a business or or you need to have something you can claim that's quick and easy and that often uh, leads to new buildings because the building goes down in value and the depreciation you can claim at its at its maximum each year it gets older so Daniel's saying, well, do we do we take that free grab, although you pay it back essentially when you sell it, do you take that depreciation or tax benefit in the year that you own it right up front? Or do we buy something older that has no depreciation and potentially we're actually forking in or, or out of our own pocket for ongoing maintenance because it is older? So it's a really interesting question. So I think for me, and I'll let you go in a moment, Emily. It's really understanding what is your actual strategy. Is it is tax benefits your number one outcome? And and if it is, then yeah, the the new apartment. If you're not too concerned about capital growth and you just want the depreciation, then 
Absolutely, you, you go for that. But if your strategy is, well, I want some capital growth and I maybe want to add some value through something that's older and not be too concerned about this, the tax benefits in that financial year, then you choose the older one. Definitely two avenues to go down. There's probably a bigger question around apartment versus house with depreciation and that same amount of money and you know where that equals as well because that's a whole nother can of worms. But in my experience, when you are looking for capital growth in the apartment market, the ones that perform the best are those 70s, you know, 80s brick builds that probably do have a level of maintenance, but also sometimes not to the extent of a newer build because with newer build usually comes lifts, car stackers, some form of amenity or common area, a bit more high tech security, like maybe they've got two doors to get through with a fob swipe, you know, that you have to maintain and electric gates and all these things. Whereas whilst um, an older apartment might not actually strike a depreciation schedule because of its age, Mm. you certainly could have value add items that maybe you could depreciate, put a depreciation schedule on over time. You know, the rules do vary on that, but there are ways around it. I think As you said, John, it really depends on your strategy as to what you're actually going for. I would personally argue that if tax, reducing tax is your only strategy, I don't know that's necessarily a personal favourite of mine, but works for some people. Yeah. And I think it's always been a a bit of a byproduct for investing, hasn't it? Is But Mm. a lot of people put it to the front of the line because their accountant has strongly suggested, look, you need to reduce your tax. You're at the highest tax rate of 45 cents or, or whatever that might be. So we need to make a dent on that. But yeah, I think we probably both in agreement that if we're just searching for depreciation and, and let's go and get the newest thing possible without any sort of uh, consideration of capital growth and and thinking about how many's in the complex and are we paying what we should be paying for that particular uh, unit or apartment, what is it renting for, et cetera, then, yeah, we may um, bring ourselves undone over the long term. Yeah, and I also think don't underestimate the, the potential extra costs associated with a new bill because I've spent a lot of time of late buying apartments for first home buyers and the biggest thing I've spent time doing is investigating the uh, body corporate fees and a lot of them, yeah. because they're starting from a nil balance of a maintenance fund, they've actually got higher levies to begin with to build it up, which is a good thing because when maintenance comes up, they'll be ready for it. But, you know, there is potential that when you buy a new build, you've got a lot more outlay up front, like a brand new build, than than an older style property. Yeah, totally. And and obviously, if, you, if you're buying brand new off the plan, then there's a time unknown uh, for, from developers and building companies in, through these times especially. So there, there is, uh, we've, we've done numerous episodes on uh, old versus new and buying apartments and buying houses. And so, so go back and listen to a few of those um, if, you, if you're new to the show. But yeah, look, generally speaking, we would say, look, there's two ways, uh, well, three ways you can make money, capital growth, adding some value and, and buying a discount. And if you, the, the capital growth is always the one that's out of our control, uh, but understanding, first of all, on the way in, how much are we paying for something and is it market rate or we're getting a discount or maybe are we paying overs for something and, and can we add some value to something over the journey? And if we can't get those two things on the way in, we've, we've got to be uh, be doing some pretty heavy research around uh, what what the capital growth potential is like. Yeah, definitely. And you're relying on a macro sort of 
factor there of yeah, infrastructure and money being put into that particular city council and all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, there's a lot that goes into buying property, hey? <laughs> wow. Very stressful, isn't it? I don't know how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just one of those things. It's a big life event and you have to learn a lot very quickly. But hopefully some of these um, questions that we cover off on make it a little bit easier for you as well. Now, moving into another question... There's some good questions in here, I must say. I was reading them a bit late last night. I was um, struggling to get to sleep, so I was just scrolling my Facebook and TikTok as per usual. We've got another question here that's come from Samuel McPherson, and Samuel has asked, do you need council approval to turn an attached garage into a bedroom? Great question, Samuel, and straight off the bat, there are a lot of properties that have Uh, illegal structures. Um, It's quite a common thing where people take it upon themselves to convert garages into a habitable space. And certainly in my experience and the councils that I have investigated with, you do, if, if the garage is turn into a habitable space. So it has, you know, you turn into like a studio, maybe you've got air conditioning in there, you've got a tap and maybe a shower or something. But changing the purpose of that structure, you do need to seek a council permit. And I think general rule of thumb is if you're unsure, just make the phone call because the ramifications of making the phone call once you have done it are a lot greater than if you do it before you start the work. Uh, you will find councils are quite helpful. Yes, yeah, and it's um, as you've alluded to. There's there's many out there that have have got illegal dwellings or illegal, I suppose, extensions, renovations, whatever you want to call them. Um, the, the big issue is maybe when you're about to sell the property and all of a sudden what was three bedrooms is now four bedrooms or what was four bedrooms is now three bedrooms. How has that come about? Someone doing their digging, real estate agent, potential buyer, etc., cetera, um, might be able to uncover all of what's transpired. Um, so that's where you, you may be in a little bit of hot water. But um, yeah, the, the other thing with renovations as well is if you're putting in a, a council application or a DA to be able to renovate your home, they usually charge you on the number of bedrooms that you're extending on. So what a lot of people have uh, have done in the past is they've said, oh, we're only putting one bedroom on as an extension instead of two, but the second one is actually a garage or they're calling it a garage, but it's actually yeah. turning it into another bedroom. bedroom. So yeah, look, councils aren't going to knock on your door um, just wildly randomly and and say oh how many bedrooms have you got how many garages have you got it's it's going to be something that's going to rear its head potentially when you when you may be selling I literally just had a live case of that happen probably only three weeks ago where a buyer must have done the correct inquiry and flagged that the old garage had been converted to a full-on studio. Like it has plumbing in there now. It's like uh, almost like a granny flat. And because that flagged halfway through the campaign, they kept the property on the market, but they delayed the sale and delayed giving contracts out until they had an engineer's report and approval from the council for that structure to be legal. And so do you know what? It's really hurt the campaign because people who don't know that information are just seeing this property sit there for ages going, what's wrong with it? Uh, And I actually don't know if it'll get the price that they 
probably deserve for that property because the buyers have almost been a bit put off by it, yeah, which sure. is interesting given that it's actually now going to be more legal than it was before. So yeah, be yeah. very careful with those sorts of things. Yeah. And it may have actually enhanced the property, but because of mm. that, that journey that they've gone through, it uh, it's sitting online, It they're, they're smelling a rat. Yeah, indeed. Mm. Moving on to another one. This one definitely raised my eyebrows when I read it. Emily, great name. Uh, Emily asks, is it a red flag if your mortgage broker encourages you to trim your expenses uh, in this way you're sort of falsifying documents? For example, spend $2,400 a month on daycare, gave this information to the broker and they put $600 per month to get us better borrowing capacity. So they've shaved, what, $1,800 off the, ex- the actual expense Per month. Per month. Um, yes, it's a red flag, I think. Well, think? I think the bank would look at it and look at the bank statements and surely it would show the transaction coming out to the daycare centre. I'm not sure how the mortgage broker is going to get around that one because you need to be showing, well, in my world, minimum three months worth of uh, expenses and statements. So, Surely it's going to show up in that. I don't know how they would actually um, get get that passed. And uh, I suppose the end of the day, if the mortgage broker does that without your consent, uh, then they are in hot water. Uh, so that that's the first part. If you're saying to the mortgage broker, "Look, can you tell a little white lie here and there?" Then it's uh, it, it's 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 on both of you at the end of the day, isn't mm. it? The only thing I can think of here is the 600 is exactly a quarter of the amount, right? So, yeah, six times four, 24, yeah. So maybe there's been a misunderstanding on the weekly expense versus the monthly expense, potentially. I know it's, you know, roughly four weeks, but yeah, I think if you're concerned about anything, regardless of this particular question, if you have concerns with the way your mortgage broker is operating or you're unsure why they're doing something, just ask. And if you don't feel comfortable to ask, they might not be the right broker for you. It's so important to have an open, transparent relationship with your mortgage broker, particularly, you know, you plan on having a relationship for life, basically. So if you can't ask a question around that, you feel unsure, maybe you might need to consider your relationship with the broker and potentially look elsewhere. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. If you're asking 47,000 people in a, in a Facebook group first, then uh, it mm. may be just a communication thing on the other end. So how many we have? 47,000? Oh my goodness, we do. Mm. That's so many people. Imagine speaking to that many people, John. Imagine, imagine if we had all those people in, in a room. room. <laughs> Always think about that. It's totally off the topic of running a podcast, but <laughs> when when a bus ad comes past and someone's paid like 15 grand for a bus ad and I'm just interested as to how many people it actually captures. A lot. Anyway. And how do they know? How do they know? Okay. <laughs> um, Glenn James asks, are you coming to New South Wales? No, Glenn, that's not a, uh, that is a question, but it's not relevant to the group. But Emily thought I was in Melbourne and I scooted out of there. Aidan Williams, a great question. The process of using equity in PPOR, principal place of residence, to buy investment properties start to finish. Now, unfortunately, Aidan, this podcast hasn't got the time desired to go through from the absolute start to finish. But again, we have got previous episodes that uh, that give you a good rundown of that. But Emily, let's go through 
uh, I suppose the uh, the dynamics or the steps that you would start with in respect to getting an investment property underway when you know you've got equity in your own home or even don't know, but let's go and check that out. So I think the first part of it is we need valuations from the bank. We don't need market appraisals from a real estate agent. We need to go straight to the source, which is the the bank who has your loan and maybe a couple of others and, and they would all do bank valuations on your home and do a servicing check at the same time to see how much equity you can extract and then how much you can borrow on top of that to then get a gauge as to what your purchase price might want to be for an investment property. And we talk about that sleep at night factor. What price to pay will keep you awake at night? Like if you go and buy an $800,000 property for an investment, will that keep you awake versus saying, well, I'm happy with 500? So regardless of what the banks will lend you, we might come back to that sweet spot for you as to as to what you're comfortable buying in at. And then I teach an eight-point strategy and we, again, there's a podcast specifically on those eight points uh, to go back and check out. But um, essentially, we want to know, well, why are we buying it? Where are we buying it? What cash flow does it need? Whose name's it going to be in? What type of property? What yield is it? Like, it, there's a whole range of questions we need to start asking ourselves. But first and foremost, we're saying, well, what is the value of our, our principal place of residence to start with? One thing on that, John, that I've come up against more recently is people who have got their PPR in place and considering this investment property purchase is when they are in a couple or a joint ownership of that PPR is making sure that both people are on the same page to go to the next step to buy an investment property. I know that's part of, you know, the questions that we do ask as we're going through the strategy of, you know, what's the outcome? What are we comfortable with? All those things. But fundamentally, if you are buying with a partner or if you own that property with a partner, just sense check that you are definitively both on the same page about the next step and what that looks like from a financial point of view for both of you. And I think people sometimes underestimate what it can look like trying to manage two properties, your own and an investment, and also thinking about longer term planning, for example, maybe family planning, going down to one income for a period of time if there's maternity leave involved, all those factors. Never think of the purchase in isolation. Always think of it holistically, how it plays out into your financial goals. And yeah, just really making sure everyone's on the same page when it comes to discussing another purchase. Yeah, absolutely. That that's a great point. You don't want the uh, the partner kicking and screaming, and then looking back on it and say, "I told you we should never have bought this." We 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 need to be absolutely in agreement that that's the right way forward for you. And as you said, future planning, like the next five or ten years, what are the going to be the variables in your life over that period? But yeah, essentially, the, the we've we've discussed more so the starting point because there's so many variables along the way. Once you do start that process, once you've physically got the equity sitting in the bank there to use, that forms your deposit for and stamps if you you're paying stamp duty there and, and legal costs etc. We, we create the strategy. You then start the search. You start to put in offers, and, and then you get an offer accepted. And then you go back to the broker and say, look, here's the contract. This is the price I'm paying. You, you get a valuation done. You get a building and pest done. And, and basically then you 
you've, you've got offers, it might be subject to building and pest inspection, subject to finance, subject to review of the contract, all those things ticked off on you, then go unconditional and then there's a settlement period of anywhere from probably 28 days to 90 days um, historically and then at the end of that settlement period you own it and, uh, and, and hopefully you've got a tenant there that's paying you money and uh, live happily ever after. Just one point I think is really key to touch on where people might logistically get a bit confused about this process. I just want to highlight it that you touched on there. Sorry, Henry. someone just came into the office. No, <laughs> someone just came into the office. Henry. So one point I want to highlight is when you are getting the valuation done and you figure out how much equity is in the property and what you can use, as you mentioned, as the deposit and the stamps, I have had experiences where that cash is not physically put into a bank account where you can actually use it to put, you know, as a 10% deposit into the agent's trust account. I've had cases where brokers have workshopped the that equity and it's kind of like it's on paper, but it's not physically anywhere. So if you are relying on that solely and you have no additional cash funds or minimal cash funds to put towards the deposit, just make sure that it's actually going to be like a physical sum of cash that you can have in a bank account and pull upon when you need to put down the deposit for the sale transaction of the property. Yeah, no, and that's a that's a great point. I actually had that situation yesterday where a client came back and said, "Look, my broker's all good for the for the pre-approval. We haven't got it yet. We haven't lodged it, um, but the they, uh, the bank knows that we're good for the finance. The servicing's fine. I'm like, all right, hang on, champ. Let's go back a step. Let's make sure we've got that equity coming there, mm. and it's actually sitting in the account because if you have a subject to finance that's seven days, you're not going to get it done in seven days. And there's there's no way that that'll happen in that period. Um, and if you ask for a 28-day finance clause, uh, the, the agent's going to laugh at you. So yeah, you, you need to be a good way down that track for sure. So again, Emily, it comes back to having a, a great mortgage broker in your corner, doesn't it? Indeed. They're vital in this process. Key, key professional. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we've got more good questions to answer. We'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, so Trib Thapa, what factors would you consider to determine the right slash best time to start paying off your investment property loan? For example, would you keep the investment property loan interest only for the first three to five years and use the cash flow during that time for cosmetic renos and extract the max rent value to help you pay off the IP loan, investment property loan, after or use equity to continue building your portfolio and determine when to pay off the loan at a later stage? Thanks heaps in advance. I feel that this is almost an episode on its own. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on this one? Is uh, There's a few ways you can go with this. I've been in this position personally, um, grappling with one way or the other. And I think the biggest thing that comes along the way is considering the end goal and the overall picture because that will actually help determine which avenue you take. In terms of keeping an interest only for the first three to five years and using that cash flow for renos, if it warrants that, for sure. But then you also, you know, you might have a surplus that you're not doing renos, you're just getting plenty of rental income, it more than covers the mortgage and you're almost stockpiling that to then pay down um, some of that principal when the time comes, which is not a bad idea. On the other hand though, if your serviceability is there and you can go from, you know, property number one to two to three really quickly and accumulate, you're in an accumulation phase, then there would be a case to say that um, using that equity as soon as possible could be a good idea. I think I kind of did a halfway myself. It's almost like a combo of both between two properties and that sort of met the needs that I that I wanted to fulfil. I think bottom line is overall picture and overall property planning would determine what avenue you take. Yeah, okay. Yeah, very good. Um, I think first and foremost, have we got a principal place of residence? Because if we have, I think that needs to be the sole focus of paying down that loan because I refer mm. to it as bad debt versus our investment mm. properties at a good debt because we can claim the running expenses of it, provided that we're working in Australia at the time. So that's my number one priority. If the banks force me to pay principal and interest on particular investment properties, then obviously... Uh, and we've tried to go to other lenders and it and it hasn't been successful, then obviously we have to, uh, I suppose, bow to their needs. But I, for me, it, it's paying down your, your own mortgage first. Now, if you haven't got your own mortgage and you're a rent vester, which is fast becoming majority of the world right now because uh, buying your own home in the location you want to live is is not always possible, then that's a different conversation. Paying down the loans gives you equity, as you mentioned, to go and do more, to, to go and buy more property, basically. But the running costs of P and I across two, three, four different properties can add up quite a lot. And I think those that have 
maybe in these times that maybe started off on P&I at 2% that are now paying 6% on two, three, four loans are going to come into a heap of uh, financial stress at the minute. Doubled with the fact that their servicing may have reduced. So they go back to the bank and say, look, I want to convert this back to interest only. Sorry, you can't because the running costs of that property have lifted by 4%. Your servicing's reduced because the living expenses have increased. You have to stay on P&I. Now, now that might sound counterintuitive. How can I not afford interest only when I'm paying P&I? That's the way the banks look at it because essentially Mm -hmm. they're judging it um, on a uh, smaller loan period. So, yeah, I I think we want to think about what's our worst case scenarios and and the worst case scenario is I start with interest only and and I can always go up to P&I at at a later date. For, For Trib, if he's saying, well, I've got three properties, I've got some spare cash sitting around, I don't want my owner occupier at any stage, that gives you, uh, I suppose, a strong, it gives you a maybe a strong decision towards paying some of those loans off. And what a great position to be in, hey, to have the choice as well. I think it's so often we talk about these questions or, you know, where people are at in their property journey. And it's just important to acknowledge that even having a property in this environment is like a yeah. milestone. <laughs> so, um, absolutely, yeah. And the way forward is certainly in having some good professionals on board as well to make sure you're getting the right personalised advice along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and got I think, you by the sounds of it, John. He's got well, you to lean on. And I suppose just to finish off on that, like people say, well, if you're only paying interest only, you, you're never actually mm-hmm. paying the home off. How do you actually get equity? Well, the equity comes in the form of the, the capital growth in that particular property and, and it gives you cash flow to be able to uh, maintain your lifestyle but also, yeah, as I said, go back to your principal place of residence debt. Next question that's somewhat along the same lines, or sort of. Matt Warren asks, the considerations for someone purchasing a first property and trying to decide between their own home or an investment property. Super handy if you can mention any professionals to chat to or resources to check out. Well, the grand old debate, what do we buy first? Our own home or an investment property? And to me personally, and um, John and Katie hear your thoughts as well, But for me, it's literally a question of lifestyle. I think that's fundamentally what it comes down to, lifestyle and probably security, particularly in this rental environment. A lot of people who probably were happy um, going down the path of being a rent vester for a period of time as their first avenue are now changing their minds that they want to be a homeowner because they want the certainty of not having crazy rent increases, not having a landlord sell from underneath them and being displaced constantly and just want that piece of security fundamentally tends to be a key decision-making point in buying a PPR as their first purchase. Whereas those who might be a bit more on the risky side of, of choices and happy to go with the flow and happy to be flexible where they live and don't mind renting tend to land in the rent vesting category And I typically find in my experience, these are people who don't usually have dependents. So they're not relying on being in a certain school zone. They're a bit more uh, carefree in their movements. They're not really tied down to anything. And so therefore renting and potentially being moved rental to rental is actually not too much of a concern to them. No, they're they're all 
good points um, that we need to, I suppose, questions we need to ask ourselves, don't we? And I actually did a, a workshop with a, a company yesterday in your hometown of Melbourne, and we were talking about this exact same thing. And, and I, I suppose we, we discussed four things or four questions that we uh, needed to ask ourselves because in the last three or four years, Emily, the, the government grants have been extremely attractive towards buying your first home to live in, do the 12-month thing and then either stay in it or move out and, and get back to to uh, rent vesting or renting somewhere or moving back home even. So I think the, the four things that we had was well, lifestyle. Do we where do we want to live? Do, are we happy living in this area that we were buying the home or do we want to rent in this particular area instead? The location of if I have to go and buy 20Ks out of town and commute another hour a day uh, just to live in my own home, is that really going to be worth it? And that probably rolls into lifestyle a bit. The grants are a... a, a um, a real consideration, but not a, a major decider. But the fact that I think it's, uh, well, in, in New South Wales, up to 800 now is no stamp duty. So you can get something quite decent, not necessarily in Sydney, but in other areas for 800,000 and pay no stamp duty. That's a savings of a, a good 40,000. So that might actually fast track you into your first property, even if you do it for 12 months. Um, and then the mindset around rent vesting, are we a renter by nature or do we want our own home to paint the walls and, and do everything else? So, yeah, there's, a, there's no one size fits all, that's for sure, but it's, it's really understanding uh, your situation. And, and I think, and I've told my story numerous times, like when I first started, I was going on that rent vesting journey for 10 years and it was against the grain. Most people or nearly everyone that I knew were buying their own home to live in. So I, I, I didn't cop a lot of um, pressure, but I, it was definitely a conversation of, well, okay, why are you renting sort of thing? So you've, you've got to be comfortable that that's going to be your strategy. But there's a bit of a hybrid now of, okay, I'll live in it for 12 months or I'll bring a uh, one or two friends in to help pay the mortgage and I get to live in my own home uh, and the and the mortgage repayments are a bit more feasible because I've got a couple of tenants. Indeed. And I think, you know, fundamentally, the what works for you doesn't work for everyone. It's one of those things I, I feel like people can get caught up on, you know, what my friends are doing and what the norm is. And as you said, you went against the grain, John, and it clearly, you know, it worked out quite well for you and your circumstances. But just like anything in life, like you've got to stick in your own lane of what suits you and not what everyone else is doing because if you followed, you know, what your best friend's doing or what your parents say you should do, you're not sort of living authentically in, you know, your avenue of what you want to create with wealth and all that sort of thing. So I think the right answer lies in each individual really when it comes to these sorts of things. And either way, you're buying a property. Again, like acknowledging that's a huge (laughs) milestone in itself. Like uh, We're extremely entitled, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah. We have choice. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I was speaking to someone the other day who got married like in their early 20s. Like there's Mm. a massive, I suppose, um, tick for buying their own home because they want that security as a couple and they're starting a family. 10, 15 years earlier than when I did. So it's, a, it's a, as you said, totally individual situation that you need to, to factor in. Um, but Matt's also asked, Handy, if you can mention any professionals to chat to or resources to check out. I mean, yeah, obviously, if you look back through a lot of our, our podcast episodes, you'll, you'll, 
you'll uh, find a lot of information on this. But I personally would just write a few of these things down that we've just spoken about and what do they all mean to you and prioritize the highest to lowest. Okay, what do I want in the next five years or 10 years for me? Um, and am I fussed if I rent or am I fu- do I really want my own home to live in? That That's probably where I would start. A professional will, like we, we do clarity calls around this stuff and we'll nut it out in a lot of detail. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it comes back to the individual and what they're after. Yeah, ultimately only you can make the make the choice. But information gather while you can and work on those goals, sort of reverse engineer them and the answer will come, I'm sure. I'm looking at all these questions, John, and I'm feeling like we're going to get through as many as we can, but we might even have to do a part two to this because we're having a good old chat, which I love. Christy Murray, if I were a first home buyer looking to engage a buyer's agent slash advocate, what are the steps involved from start to finish? Can I just point out um, terminology-wise, buyer's agent, buyer's advocate are one of the same thing. I think a lot of people get confused by that. I feel like New South Wales has buyer's agent a lot more. Uh, down here in Victoria, advocate's more the the go-to word. But just to clarify on that as a starting point, the yeah, steps involved start like to finish. Stoby pole? What's Stoby pole? What? <laughs> you know what a Stoby pole is? It's, no. a, power, it's a power line pole. But uh, in oh, so I, think- I know the word power line, but it's, what does <laughs> Stoby mean? I'm Googling. It's a, a Stoby line pole, a Stoby pole. So you know, I think oh, it was Stobie Adelaide pole. where I learnt the word Stoby. Um, but yeah, any case, buyer's agent, buyer's advocate, same thing. Yeah, one of the same. Hmm. So in terms of this, the steps start to finish, well, it depends in what capacity you engage them in. There's mainly two capacities that you would engage So just as a starting point, there are two key capacities that you would work with an advocate. One is when you identify a property that's most likely on market that you would want negotiated or you want the advocate to bid on for. And that's probably a, it's not as high touch. It's quite a quick process. They sort of inspect it, assess it and act on it for you. Whereas what most people would identify as a full service of work is a lot more involved. It's sourcing all options, inspecting, doing pricing reports on everything, um, identifying areas, like it's a lot more involved and it's an end-to-end process where you basically don't need to do anything except inspect the properties and decide which ones you like. That's, you know, a, a lot um, a lot of outsourcing to a professional where you just sort of get to enjoy the good parts and make, make the key decisions. Yeah, totally. Is that how you so- see it, John? I think um, is Christy saying first home buyer as in I'm going to live in it. I want to to make it my principal place of residence in the short term. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. specifically first yeah. home okay. buyer. So, yeah. yeah, look, essentially there's a, there's an element of emotion and a, an element of logic and research. So the buyer's agent brings the the research and the logic into it, and the and the owner Christy brings the emotion. This is what I want. This is the locations. These are the these are the things that I prioritise in my in my place. This is what I need. And then jointly you go about it together. But essentially the buyer's agent is doing the the heavy lifting for you, and uh, and you're as you said inspecting the properties and saying yes, no, or otherwise. Yeah, and ultimately you own the property, so you would sign any legal documents related to the property. You know, it's your decision as to what you purchase, but that advocate or agent is very much there to be the voice of reason, and in many cases steer you away from some pretty big mistakes 
or at the very least educate you. If you really like a property, but you know, there's a couple of key things wrong with it, it's outlining all those things that are wrong so that you're making a really informed decision. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we do the occasional owner-ock, but a lot of it is investing. But you're more in that owner-ock space, Emily. Do you have to find that balance between emotionally, this is what I want to live in and I'm the one paying for it versus you coming in and saying, well, actually, no, I think this is a dog's breakfast because of X, Y, Z? Yeah, very much so. Um, So we strictly just buy places that people live in. So a lot of emotional uh, drive in there. There's only been ever one client who went really against my advice um, and bought something that, don't get me wrong, it wasn't a bad property. I just thought there was another property that would have been better. Now they made the decision and they still stick by their decision. They love the property. And that's that element where, you know, it's their personal preference of what they want versus my professional opinion of what could be better. But yeah, you are constantly battling between head and heart. And um, yeah, we've got to focus on making sure it's a really good choice for the long term future Mm. of, you know, what they're trying to create. Yeah, totally. Because a lot of the owner rocks that we do, have that investment mindset. They're like, okay, I'm going to live in it for the short term, but I want it to be an investment. So I hope it grows in value so I can then continue to invest. So a lot of it's more in that research side growth perspective versus uh, I'm only going to be living in it for a, a short term. So I don't really need to to have the, the bells and whistles. Yeah, for sure. Always a balance. And I think understanding the purpose of your purchase is the first question I always ask. What is the purpose of this purchase? If the long-term purpose is investment, then take away all the fluff and nice stuff and focus on the numbers. If it's, this is our forever home for or at least the 10, 15 year plan, then focus on, you know, having those key attributes of what you definitely need to make it a forever home. I like it. I like it. And, uh, Look, that's probably all we've got time for today, but just let's roll in nicely to uh, your buyer's agent service and, and you're out there to, to beat spring, aren't you? You want, uh, you want to get a heads up on, on beating all these, because uh, especially in Melbourne, I find that the busiest time of year for buying property in Melbourne is always spring. Am I right? Oh, definitely. Like it's the absolute sprint season. Let's call it the spring sprint because you literally just are running for three months uh, to Christmas on trying to beat the crowds. And particularly this year, I'm finding a lot of people have already made the decision to sell in spring and we're recording this in July and they're starting to get you know, handymen through to fix things or painters in. and But there's actually this window of opportunity where the vendor will actually sell without doing the work. They're happy to sell yeah. prior. In fact, I mean, how good if someone could walk in and go, I'll take this off your hands. Don't worry about paying 10, yeah. 15K to get up to scratch. I'll just do it. So yeah, yeah, we're trying to beat the rush at the moment, which is um, a challenge, but it's a good one. Yeah. All right. So if you're out there thinking about buying your home in uh, in Melbourne, then Emily is your first port of call to go and do that off market, on market, whatever it is, she will find you the best deal for you. So hook her up. Hook me up. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, we will bring a part two on the rest. Like if you posted on that um, Facebook thread and you didn't have your question answered, don't fret. We will come back to it in a future episode. We um, can't guarantee that, by the way. Oh, we'll try. (laughs) We'll try our best. We're doing our best. (laughs) We are. Yeah. And if you want to post on there, which someone has already, uh, that you want it anonymous, then that's fine as well. Yeah. We're happy to keep you a secret. It's more than fine. Yeah. Well, have a great week ahead. And until next week. 
Um, I don't know. Bye. <laughs>